Well, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 and just uh, have that ready. I hope you picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you came in. Uh, we really are coming down the home stretch of our study of Philippians. Matter of fact, uh, it would take me two weeks uh, to uh, complete the message that you have in your hand right now if you do have the sermon notes. And then on the uh, 25th of this month uh, will be the concluding message in this uh, marvelous study of the book of uh, Philippians. So after today, just uh, two more messages. And also, uh, we won't have PowerPoint for the first page of your sermon notes since it's just review, lay some foundation uh, for today's message. The uh, PowerPoint will pick up on the uh, second side of your sermon notes when we get there where it talks about the secret uh, to com contentment. But we're not going to get very far today. Uh, probably just that first point on the uh, second uh, page. Uh, but look at your review there in your uh, sermon notes. Chapter 4 is the Apostle Paul's closing admonition to the church at Philippi to stand firm in the Lord in the face of persecution and to continue to advance the gospel of Christ. Uh, Paul shares seven ways for the church to stand firm. And in previous messages, uh, we examine uh, the first five that you see there in your sermon notes. First, we must stand firm through harmony in the church. Paul understood a divided church would never be able to stand up against persecution and to advance the gospel of Christ. That requires a united church, a church that's walking together in harmony and cooperation, encouraging and supporting one another. Second, to stand firm through joy uh, in the Lord. That we're not to look for our joy in the circumstances in life, but in our relationship with Jesus Christ, just what J.D. just sang about, Jesus being the center of our lives. And then third, to stand firm through graciousness uh, to others, and especially those who oppose us, that we learn that uh, divine balance of being uh, rooted and uh, anchored in the truth, uh, not afraid to stand on the truth, but at the same time to know that wonderful tenderness of grace in our lives that Jesus walked in and especially again towards those who oppose us and then fourth to stand firm through God's peace in prayer which we saw as the antidote to worry uh, that famous passage we're not to worry about anything but we're to pray about everything and as we do uh, meditate on God rather than our problems uh, God will get bigger and bigger and that peace of God will come settle us as Christ is the center of our lives and as he guides us. And then last week, we saw that we're to stand firm through right thinking. Paul rightly understood that the real battle for the Christian begins in the mind. And uh, that's where the battle will have to be fought. That's where the battle would have to be won. And only when it is won there will it be able to express itself through our lives as we extend and express the presence of Jesus to others. So today we come to the sixth way to stand firm in the Lord and that is we must learn like Paul how to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So let's read our verses. Let's read our verses for today. Begin reading at verse 10 of chapter 4 and we'll read through verse 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly 
that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Uh, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now just pause right there. What is Paul referring to? Remember, the occasion for this letter was the Philippian church sent one of their members, Epaphrodites, one of their leaders, uh, to Paul uh, when he was in prison in Rome. And uh, Paul and Epaphrodites brought with him a gift from the church, a material gift to support Paul. So what Paul is doing in, in verse 10, he's, he's thanking them uh, that they revived their concern for him. And that although that concern had always been there, they had just lacked opportunity. But they seized the opportunity that God gave them and, uh, and gave him uh, this gift which came just at the uh, right time uh, to uh, meet his needs. And then verse 11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now look back at your sermon notes, at defining contentment. And I thought you would find this uh, interesting. At least uh, uh, I found this immensely interesting. Paul, Paul actually borrows the word content that he uses here in Philippians 4 from the Greek Stoics. Now, as we're going to see, he re redefines the word. But look at how the Stoics defined the word content that Paul used. They defined it as arriving at a state of absolute self-sufficiency and self-reliance. You need to circle those phrases. That, that is at the heart of what they understood contentment to be. And you also need to understand for the Greek Stoics um, that existed in New Testament days uh, that were very, very prominent in uh, culture and uh, their philosophy permeated uh, virtually every sector of the, of the culture, this was their highest goal. This was their greatest aim, was to, uh, to achieve contentment. But again, they define contentment as, notice, absolute self-sufficiency and self-reliance by, this is how it was arrived at, by putting to death all desires, emotions, putting to death love itself, and caring until unmoved by circumstances things, and people. Now, just pause right there. Let me give you an example. One of the great Greek Stoics that lived during the time of the Apostle Paul was uh, Epictetus. And listen to this quote by this Greek Stoic. He says, begin with a cup or a household utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself. And if you're hurt or injured in any way, just simply say, I don't care. And if you go on long enough, and if you try hard enough, and that's a key, 
The Stoics believed you reached this state by just a sheer act of your will. Just sheer act of your will. So he says, if you try hard enough, you'll eventually come to a state when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. So going back to your sermon notes, in other words, thinking yourself, this is what the Stoics aimed at, thinking yourself into a don't care attitude where you do not need anything or anyone and you look only within yourself for happiness and peace. Now that's very sad. Amen? I mean, who would actually want to live that way? Uh, As one writer put it, the Stoics made the heart a desert and called it peace. Now that's not Christianity, folks. Now, Paul, what he does, he redefined the word content, as you see there in your sermon notes. To express not being self-sufficient, but Christ-sufficient. Not being self-sufficient, but Christ-sufficient. For Paul, to be content was being adequate for anything and everything life threw at him because of his reliance on Christ who lived within him, which gave him an unshakable calm, serenity, and peace in all things. And that's why he says in 4.13, I can do all things through what? Christ, who strengthens me. Now, move on in your notes and look at Paul's credibility. And I think this is important to see. Who's teaching us about contentment here? Paul's credibility to teach the secret to contentment. We need to ask ourselves, what are the any and every circumstance that Paul refers to in verse 12 where he learned the secret of contentment? Well, if you want an example, take your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm sorry, it's chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's look at these any and every circumstance Paul's talking about where he had learned contentment, peace, serenity, calm. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. Now here here we go. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments beat times without number often in danger of death verse 24 five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes you know what he's referring there that there to that's the scourging Jesus received before his crucifixion he says I've suffered that five times three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. 
Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus. He who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the Enoch under Aretas, the king was guarding the city of, uh, Damas- of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. Now, folks, I think we need to listen to Paul. Uh, those are quite a list of circumstances, aren't they? And this man is saying, it's in the midst of those kind of circumstances, I learn contentment in Christ. I learn peace, calm, and serenity. So I think Paul has something to teach us. Now, before we move on, just for a little self-evaluation, answer that next question in your notes. And and here's the question. Am I a thermometer or a thermostat? I'll explain to you what I mean in just a moment. You need, to ask, you need to ask yourself that question before God. In a very honest, am I a thermometer in life or am I a thermostat? Okay, let me tell you what I mean. A thermometer does what? It registers the temperature. And therefore, it's always fluctuating. It's going up and down. A thermometer lacks the power to change anything. Instead... The outside environment, what? Changes it. So if you're a thermometer, you're just continually being changed by your external circumstances. If your circumstances are good, you are bright. You're optimistic. You're happy. If your circumstances are bad, you're depressed. You're worried. You're down. As a result, you continually experience in your life spiritual ups and downs. You're like a spiritual roller coaster. There's no steadiness in your life. There's no stability in your life. A thermostat, on the other hand, regulates the surroundings and changes them when they need to be changed. It can change a what? A hot room into a cool room. A cold room into a warm room. So if you, are a, if you are a thermostat, which is God's goal for you, your spiritual outlook, your faith, your hope, and your love does not change when circumstances change. Instead of becoming a victim to your circumstances, you are a victor over them. And you just steadily continue to serve Christ, and your presence has a steadying influence on others. So are you a thermometer or your thermostat? In your home, who's controlling the atmosphere? The parent or the child? At the workplace, what's controlling your attitude? The environment or your relationship with Christ? I mean, we just go on it. So are you a thermometer or your thermostat now what we need to understand is when we come to know Christ we all begin as thermometers that's what Paul is indicating right here in Philippians 4 notice he said I learned it. He, he learned this it didn't automatically happen 
So the question is, what's the secret to contentment? And that takes us to that backside of your sermon notes. And all we're going to have the opportunity to do is just touch base with this, and then we'll pick it up. I won't even finish this first point right now, but I just want to at least lay the groundwork. This is where the secret to contentment begins, and that is viewing needs as opportunities to look to God's providence. Viewing my needs, the crisis I face, the adversity I face, as opportunities to look to find confidence in God's providence. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 11. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. What we noticed a moment ago, what Paul is actually thanking and rejoicing in the Lord in is God's providence. That in God's providence... Just in the nick of time, just at the right time, he used the Philippians and he provided them the opportunity to minister to a very unique need that he had in his imprisonment. Now look at the definition that I've given you there in your notes of providence. Providence speaks of the provision of God. As he takes the all things of life and orchestrates them to accomplish his purpose in the life of his child. Let me read that again and look at it carefully. Providence speaks of the provision of God as He takes, as He uses the all things of life, the good and the bad, and orchestrates all of that to accomplish His purpose in the life of His child. You know, the word providence comes from two Latin words. Pro meaning before and video meaning to see. God's providence means, don't miss this, that God sees and provides beforehand. That He sees and provides beforehand. In other words, God in His omniscience sees beforehand, before it happens in time, space, and history. He sees ahead. He sees every need you will ever encounter in life. Every crisis, every adversity. God is never caught by surprise. He never needs to panic because He knows in His omniscience. And then by His omnipotence, He orchestrates through circumstances, through a million decisions, without violating the free will of man, He orchestrates all of that to provide for his child and to accomplish his purpose in the life of his child. This is why, for example, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 8, your father knows what you need. Do you remember what the rest of it reads? Before you even ask him. Now let me just pause right there and give you a little teaching on prayer. A lot of people read that and they say, why, the, why even pray? What is, what is the point? I mean, if God already knows my need, before I ask, what, well, you, you, you misunderstand prayer. You need to understand prayer in the light of God's providence. See, in eternity past, God again foresaw every, as one of His children, God saw every need, every crisis, 
every verse that you would ever encounter. And then in his great love for you and by means of his omnipotence, beforehand he made that provision. I don't go to God in prayer to twist the arm of a reluctant God trying to get him to meet my need. No, I go to prayer knowing that I have a loving Heavenly Father who foresaw this need, this crisis, this adversity, that he's already made the provision. So the exciting thing about prayer is to go to God in prayer to discover the provision that he's already made. And that's why when you neglect prayer, you neglect so much that God has for you. Because you might ask, here's a good way of looking at it. You say, okay, if God has foreseen every need, every crisis, every adversity I'm ever going to encounter, and he's already made provision for me, then before it actually happens in time, space, and history, where has he stored that provision? And I believe Jesus gives us the answer also in Matthew 6, in the inner room which is tamion in the Greek text. He says, when you go to prayer, go to your father in the inner room. Now, a tamion, every Jewish home had a tamion. Tamion was a special room. It was a special closet. It was a special where they would store their valuables. You know, they didn't have banks back then where they would put their stuff in safety deposit boxes. No, they had to, they had to hide their valuables. So every Jewish home had what they called a tamion, the inner room. It was a secret place that would be kept concealed where they would hide their valuables. And what God is saying is, I've taken all that provision for you, and I've stored it in the tamion, in the inner room. And as you, the wonderful privilege of prayer is you come to your Father confident in His love, in faith, not in doubt you have the joy of discovering that provision. But when you neglect prayer, when you are meditating more on your problem rather than God, what happens? You miss those care packages that he sent. And, I, and you know, I often wonder when I get to heaven, looking back, I wonder how many care packages I never took advantage of where God made provision for me. But I either never prayed. I took it on my own to try to accomplish. I was so eaten up with worry and anxiety that my prayer itself was only an exercise of unbelief rather than faith in a loving, in a loving God. The next week, you see there, we're going to see some examples of God's providence. And I think you'll find this very fascinating just to see these examples. But as we close today, and again, we're, all we're doing is laying a foundation today. Bottom line, you're never going to know true contentment until you place your confidence in what? God's providence. That He's got your back covered, and He's got a plan, and it's going to work out, and you can just cool it, resting in Him. I'll give you an example. This, this illustration, as I close, it, it, it falls apart in a lot of places, but you'll understand why I'm using it. Our daughter, Caitlin, plays volleyball for Columbus State University, and this past weekend, they had this big uh, tournament in Illinois, and uh, they played four games, and uh, I was able to see all those games through live stream uh, using uh, the computer, 
And they, they got in the game uh, yesterday. If you know anything about volleyball, you've got to win three out of five sets. First one that wins three sets wins the match. And so they got into a very tough uh, match with the host school, the school that was hosting the tournament, and it went to five sets. They went into the fifth set. And me and Kathy were watching it there in the kitchen on my laptop, and uh, Kathy got very perturbed at me because I got very loud uh, in my excitement, in my clapping. Matter of fact, she got so perturbed that she just left and went upstairs to a different computer to watch on her own. Well, all of a sudden I realized, and I just sort of came on this action. I won't go into details of the technical. I realized the live stream was a little delayed. And I realized that I could find what the actual score was in live before I saw it played out. So, of course, you know what I did. I, I was watching it, but I just f- figured out a way I could see the actual score in live time. And, folks, we won. We won. But, oh, no, wait, here's the point. My demeanor and disposition totally changed. I mean, once I saw and was confident in the outcome, oh, I was able to sit back. Oh, I I mean, I was in perfect peace, content, you know. I was serene. I was calm. Kathy was very happy. She wondered what in the world happened to her husband. That's just a little illustration. See, the point is, yes, we don't know. God's providence is what? A mystery. And we're going to talk about that next week. It's a mystery. And on our part, it requires when I can't trace God's hand, to trust God's heart. That He does love me, that He has a plan, that I can trust His providence, that it will come through just in the nick of time. And whatever the need is, whatever the adversity, whatever the crisis, God has a plan for my life, and He has the ability to complete the good work that He's begun in me. And contentment is just resting in that. See, what happened to me and that... That's how, that's how God lives. <laughs> he knows that he's going to win in the end. He knows his people are going to win. He knows how it's, he's going to orchestrate it. We don't. We don't see it. But that's where we find contentment. By resting, trusting a God who loves us, who values us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? And we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved him. So I hope that just sort of whets your appetite uh, for next week as we uh, complete this message, because it will be a wonderful message as we look at, at, at examples of God's providence and glean from those lessons and then move on with a couple other lessons. Father, thank you for this marvelous truth uh, today. And uh, Father, uh, we simply acknowledge... Uh, your providence and we thank you for your providence but we acknowledge that we're finite we do not see uh, the end and so while we're the story is being played out it's all a mystery to us and sometimes we get lost and we don't see any rhyme we don't see any reason we don't see any plot 
So, Lord, free our hearts to trust you. And, Lord, we can only trust you when we know your love. And so our greatest need is not to do something, but is to see you, to see your love, to see your grace, to see your providence. And in seeing you and knowing you, we rest in you. As Hudson Taylor said, it's not so much striving after more faith, but resting in the faithful one. So, Lord, open the eyes of our hearts to see you, to love, honor, and trust you. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.